You are listening to Jair, 88 FM. You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. Streaming live on the internet at j-air.com.au and on 88FM. My name is David Schulberg bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Stay tuned for my interview with MP for Gold Scene Zoe Daniel who recently returned from a short trip to Israel. To start with today, I speak with Dr. Ran Porat, Affiliate Research Associate at the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilization, Monash University, and a Research Associate with the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council. Ran has written an article, Israeli Army Moves to Centre Stage in Judicial Reform Controversy, and we discuss the effect of the Israeli government's judicial overhaul program on Israelis serving in the IDF. Welcome back to the Israel Connection. One of my favourite guests, Ran Porat. Great to have you on the show again, Ran. Always a pleasure to talk to you, David. Mine too. You wrote that protests in Israel against the government's controversial judicial overhaul have reached boiling point with this most dramatic step taken by army reservists to stop volunteering to serve in Israel's defence force unless the government halts its judicial reform legislation and reaches a compromise with the opposition about it. And before I ask you or, or you respond to that uh, statement that I've just made, which is what you've written about, I'm just going to play a little audio clip where, uh, which is coming from the Israel Policy Forum where there was uh, an event a week or so ago on the reasonableness uh, law that's been passed in Israel and this very aspect of uh, the national security threat. Clearly, Israel's enemies are watching the the disarray and, and particularly what's happening with the IDF, I would imagine. Very much so. They're sitting there with popcorn in hand, uh, watching uh, the Jews uh, tear, tear themselves apart uh, for really no no apparent reason except, uh, well, uh, we all know the motivation of this particular government. Having heard that, Ron, would you say that it's a reasonable thing to do or is it foolhardy? of these reservists to be potentially harming Israel's national security by, by their actions? First of all, it, it is a very unusual situation in Israel now, and in general, because the way the army was built or constructed, because of demographical reasons and for uh, practical reasons, it is based on the reservists more than it is on the, at least at the same level as it is on the what we call the regular army young people that enlist for two to three years, uh, men and women. Because of that, the weight of the reservists in the army uh, is, uh, as I said, significant, but they also have a dual status, so they're soldiers and citizens at the same time. And the more they are in a sensitive uh, role, or the more they are in a role that demands them to be in active service duty or some sort of reserve duty on a regular basis like the pilots, the more power they have in their hands. Now, that power in all of Israel's history was rarely used as a tool against the government. What happened with this government 
is that they were mistaken or did not understand the gravity of their steps in what the other side that opposes the government saw as breaking the rules of the game. And when they broke the rules of the game from the perspective of the protesters, it's okay to break the rules of the game from the perspective of the citizen soldiers. And the game was, as the grab says, we have a contract. The contract is we will serve, we'll give our lives, our time, everything, our efforts, our souls to the army as reservists. And as, as long as Israel remains the, uh, the villa in the jungle, the democracy in the Middle East, the only, the shining star. Once they uh, recognize the protesters, what they see as a steps toward, uh, I wouldn't call it a, a dictatorship, at least an authoritarian regime of some sort that uh, actually annuls the power of the courts to oversee the government's actions. That's when these protesters decided to take this dramatic step. It is a dramatic step, and I speak to my friends in Israel that uh, serve, still serve in, in several units because... Despite my old age, some of my friends still serve because of their sensitive and high-ranking positions. And they tell me that, uh, yes, they will not do reserve service to, uh, you know, sharpen their skills. But if a push comes to shove and there's a, a war or conflict, of course, they will be the first to join in. That, that's just not enough. Because, uh, for instance, for, for pilots or even for uh, cyber warriors, you have to. You must be uh, updated or uh, exercised on a regular basis. Otherwise, we know of cases where military operations were canceled in the past because the uh, commanders felt that the unit is not ready because the reservists did not have that uh, week of uh, planning or, or, or preparing. Even now, when we're talking about anywhere between, you know, the minimum number is something like 10,000 and the maximum number is something like 150,000 reservists not doing their periodical voluntary service, and we must remember it's a voluntary. They're not obliged by law. They're not obliged by law. Uh, in that sense, they don't bear penalties. But if even the 10,000 in an army of, uh, I don't know, half a million is very significant. These are people in the most sensitive, influential, important position. So a very unprecedented and very uh, volatile situation. So you're thinking... Well, you're saying it's a serious situation and uh, you're also indicating that the army's readiness for war and combat uh, could be at stake. Was it, is it as, as bad as that and have we seen any evidence of that? I know that in one respect, particularly with the, the pilots, uh, the reservists are key in, in terms of uh, keeping the Air Force uh, uh, going because the reservists uh, very frequently uh, sit together with the, the current pilots who are uh, running the uh, the Air Force and they provide very vital support by participating in flights together with the, the current uh, members of the IDF who are in the Air Force. In the Air Force, they lead the attack, by the way. They lead the formations on uh, on the... Let's not forget Israel is an on, in an ongoing war all the time. The war between wars, the Mabam, is, uh, has never stopped. But this is just the Air Force. And the Air Force, of course, is Israel's long uh, strategic arm to reach, you know, faraway places, not to mention Iran. But it's all over the army. Think about intelligence units. Uh, the, the army is uh, blind without intelligence. Now, let's say uh, intelligence is built a lot about uh, on on reservists in those units. If the reservist refuses to to come, uh, a regular has to take their place. 
or the 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 station or the uh, sources he covers or they or she covers are left un, untouched or are uncovered and that's crucial the level of intelligence is lowered people that in the regular army get more and more frustrated and tired it's not a pinpoint issue it's a systematical issue it's a system it's an issue that can run across the army ranks because the reservists have multiple functions in, in the army not just the uh, logistic or let's say the fighting capacities it's it's more it's also the social capacities it's also the the idea of personnel of the human resources all of these are now in danger because of what I see as the inability of the government to actually see beyond their ideology without without judging the ideology it's actually listening to the issue here and the issue here is that their ideology has created uh, such deep divisions or actually the policy based on their ideology that they must stop in their tracks and reconsider because the, uh, the army's capabilities are at stake there are signs that they may uh, not go uh, all the way with the judicial overhauls i've been hearing of late that uh, perhaps only the uh, the, the panel that appoints judges will be the uh, other part of the law that they will consider. But from that point, they may stop proceeding any further with the, the laws that they're planning to institute. But before we uh, uh, hypothesise on that possibility, even if a compromise is achieved in the future of some kind, you've written that the damage inflicted on the IDF by this episode will take a long time to repair the inner cohesion and the commitment of Israeli soldiers to serve in the army have been crucial components of the IDF success as the people's army, as you would say. Now, I'm going to uh, play another little audio clip where this is summed up again by the Israeli Policy Forum. The extent of the damage uh, that this judicial overhaul bill that was passed just two days ago uh, is having on uh, the order of battle. Uh, and by the way, not just the reserves, not just the reserves, but it's seeping into um, the standing professional army officers choosing not to either to stop their their contracts or not extend their contracts. And it may even seep into the conscript army uh, with very talented soldiers uh, choosing not to go to officer training uh, courses, not to become officers. And even uh, again, this is happening you know, today or tomorrow or next week. But in future, uh, parents uh, either urging their, their their sons and daughters not to enlist, or if they enlist, uh, maybe not to go for the uh, most important positions, i.e. it's a question of motivation. Uh, and really, you talk to the reservists uh, on the streets and in private conversations, and they're they're deeply, deeply upset. These are the arguably the most patriotic Israelis, uh, true Zionists who, who sacrifice a lot, uh, sometimes giving uh, the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, but on the very, the very least, you know, their time, their sweat, uh, their blood, uh, family life, and the like, uh, to this country because they truly believe. Uh, but they also believe that there's a contract, a unwritten contract, but a contract nonetheless uh, between themselves as citizen soldiers uh, and the Jewish state uh, and the Israeli government that runs the state, uh, that this country should remain both Jewish and democratic. And they see the actions of this government as not a policy issue, but a real uh, break in the social covenant here. Uh, that they're undermining Israel's democratic uh, values and character, and that's that's a, a non-starter for them. So listening to what uh, is said there, with these threats that uh, loom on uh, Israel's 
IDF and its uh, social cohesion. Are there signs of cracks in the Zionist edifice? Would you go as far as to say that? I don't know if that if that's the the case. Uh, again, the Zionist edifice is a is a story to, to topic for another discussion. There are signs. There are clear signs that barrier has been broken on both sides. So the first barrier that was broken is from the politicians' side. So the criticism of the army is seminal, is essential to every democratic society. The army is not above the law or, or above criticism. But what uh, the politicians from the coalition did is turned it into ugly, messy, personal, low-level, I would call it, um, you know, disgusting kind of cheap shots against the people that actually give their lives and their time to, to uh, saving or protecting Israel. By the way, sometimes from people who don't even serve, they never even served in the army. But uh, that's one, one side. That's one border. That's one border that was being breached. And on the other side, the reservists also took it a step that may be too far. So they say it's legitimate to use that power, to use that very sensitive point or uh, I would say uh, um, structure, the way that the army is structured, to use that to gain political power. And in the midst of that, standing in between those conflicting uh, extremists, in in a sense, are uh, the army commanders. And they have to function, and they have to protect uh, Israel, and they have to prepare soldiers, and they have to deal with reservists and regulars and, and officers that are thinking about their way ahead. Why should they stay in the army if the army is so controversial, divided, etc.? If there's a battle, should they only send people that support these, the form forward or just keep them... Keep the other ones in uh, at bay. It's it's complicated. It uh, that is the damage. The damage is that the army was the people's army above politics. Of course, it's an image because the army was always involved in politics. Let me tell you that. In during the Oslo years, the army was pushing for for a certain direction, and during the Intifada, was pushing the other direction. The army had a stake in decision decision making, and people were political inside the army either way. But it was not that people outside the army, trying to politicize the army. It's the army's political agendas, etc., being uh, in, in community, was surfaced during communications with the policymakers. That's what happens across the world. What happened here is the citizens uh, using their power over the army to bend the government, or try to bend the government. Uh, it's not a military coup, as some claim. It's not. But it is citizens using their uh, privileges as soldiers to as a political tool so it's not driven by the army the army is a victim here in this uh, ugly and uh, dangerous conflict between citizens and a government that doesn't see beyond their political needs yeah, from the israel uh, policy forum uh, there's uh, some uh, discussion there about sections of the idf that will be most affected by uh, by these refusals to serve. And I think there's the point made as well. Well, we'll hear that in just a second. The point made that it is, is it really appropriate for the, um, for the IDF to get involved in politics? And I think you would say no, but, uh, we're on the edge here of, uh, whether it should be a yes or no. Um, in terms of the IDF's role, um, here I'd argue that there is no direct role for them to take. The army should remain out of politics. Again, it's, it's distinct from the actual citizen soldiers and the reservists are citizen soldiers. 
uh, making their own individual decisions. The institution of the IDF as an institution should remain out of it, um, except for the fact that we may, as Masua uh, mentioned, be arriving soon at maybe a constitutional crisis where the gatekeepers, the civil servants, and really the security chiefs will have to make a decision about who they listen to, the courts, the Supreme Court, or the government. Um, and that will be a huge, and hopefully we don't get there, but a huge moment of truth for them um, in this uh, potential constitutional crisis. Uh, but for right now, the IDF top brass, and by the way, also the Shin Bet Intelligence Agency and the Mossad uh, uh, Intelligence Agency um, are also grappling with this in a slightly different way. Uh, but they're all involved in it. This is a real and again a clear and present danger to Israeli national security. What's happening here right now? Having having uh, heard the impacts of uh, of on the IDF that uh, are taking place, what what do you say about the IDF's involvement or interference, even in politics in this uh, context? As I said, uh, the IDF was always uh, in contact with politicians and always had an input on policies and that's because ea it's uh, one of the responsibilities of the army right to uh point pinpoint uh issues problems uh threats options or or positive uh, developments or whatever it's it's their job and they're asked to intervene they're asked to uh, voice their opinion it's a complex relationship that exists uh, in many many uh democratic societies it's not unusual Sure, there were extreme cases, the famous case where uh, the army generals tried to force uh, Ariel Sharon, including at the eve of the uh, Six-Day six War, tried to force uh, Prime Minister Schkoll to uh, attack, and he said, we have to wait for the Americans, and he was right. And there were also other isolated cases, and, and the examples I can quote, but uh, then I'll be court-martialed for quoting uh, the army secrets. But all I'm saying it is not unusual for an army to be involved in politics. Of course, it happens all over. It, it becomes dangerous when the army has an agenda. And in this case, the army does not have an agenda. People inside the army, people serving in the army, inside or as reservists, as which is, I consider some, somewhat outside, half outside, half inside, they have the agenda, not the army as, as, it, as such. It's not that it's sending tanks to, uh, you know, overtake the Knesset or the Supreme Court. That's not going to happen, or it doesn't seem feasible or even uh, practical or even uh, possible at this, at this stage. Putting the army in as, as the battleground of the protest, that is what is dangerous here. Yeah, there's also the fact that um, there are many uh, in the idea for... Uh, uh, associated with the IDF as reservists who feel that uh, there shouldn't be any interference. And so there is a danger of a stigma being connected to those who uh, are opposing what the, the government is doing. There's this friction that is is going to exist there. With uh, with Defence Minister Yoav Gallant, who acquiesced to the passing of the law that we've just seen last week, he raised objections back in March, and that raised the ire of Netanyahu, who fired him for calling to pause the judicial overhauls. And facing dire polls and growing public anger and anxiety over a wave of attacks on multiple fronts, it seems that uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was forced, in a sense, to reinstate Defence Minister Yoav Gallant, although he'd fired him just two weeks prior for publicly calling to freeze the plans to overhaul the judicial system. Now, Gallant tried to squeeze some concession out of Justice Minister Yariv Levin, and he 
even dispatched a couple of IDF generals into the Knesset to brief members of the security cabinet to be very aware of the danger of revoking the reasonableness criterion. Does Yoav Gallant present a continuing risk to the governing coalition? Does he show a potential to jump ship at some point uh, again in the future? Well, I, uh, if I may, I just want to quote uh, something that I've written to, I've, I've noted to myself to quote, which is uh, from the Proverbs 23.9 from the Bible, right? Speak not into the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Gallant and the chief of staff, Erzia Levy and others, which were trying to speak to people that uh, blocked their ears. And he was using reason to try to uh, explain to them the dangers of passing the law, even from a practical uh, Leave the ideology aside. You may be right, but you're not smart. And Netanyahu actually avoided meeting Ertia Levy, the chief of staff, met him only after the, the law revised reasonableness uh, clause or the cancelling of a reasonable clause uh, oversight over the government uh, law passed. From the from the point of view of Gallant, I think he's a, he's a bit of a disappointment for all sides. As a politician, he's made a crucial mistake here because he could have stood up and say, I, I oppose this law and become the hero of the protesters. Or he could have just go with the flow and uh, vote with the government and become the uh, proof for those who support the overhaul that it's correct and there's no danger. Instead, he was trying to, as we say, dance in both ways. He's trying to get it both ways, but he ended up losing on both sides. He's considered a coward on both sides. A mistake from his perspective and, and the lack of political experience. Netanyahu, on the other hand, is a, so shrew and so politically wise. I'm not going to comment on any other issues, but politically he's got very, lots of experience and he knows and he thinks that he can navigate himself out of this problem by suggesting we're only going to, we are only going to do this and this and then stop, which is, it reminds me of, uh, I'm only going to add this uh, poison to the cake. You can eat it, and after that, I'll stop. Right? Uh, the protesters do not see that in that concept. They see, they understand that what is Netanyahu is doing is selling the overhaul piece by piece, or at least only he only wants the pieces that are important to him. And the judicial, the committee to, to for the selection of judges is crucial for him, crucial for political reasons, for personal reasons. So he wants to get through the line with these two issues. He already got one over the line, the reasonableness. He will be content. He doesn't care about the rest. And he could tell his coalition partner, listen, we did our best and we got this. We'll be happy with that. And he'll tell the protesters, listen, I stopped it. So he, he sells everybody uh, whatever product they want to buy. Uh, but uh, I don't think the protesters or the politicians on, the, on his uh, right side are uh, going to buy it at this stage. So without a doubt, the momentum is still strong in the protest movement, even even though we're going to see a pause uh, until we get uh, past this recess that the, the Knesset is uh, currently in. But what's going to happen, uh, would you suggest, if the government uh, refuses to uphold a Supreme Court decision that disqualifies this uh, first step of the judicial overhaul process? So uh, we are already, already witnessing some sort of uh, constitutional crisis with no constitution. The, the law that deals with the recluse, uh, the, the reasons why a uh, uh, prime minister should be incapacitated or declare himself incapacitated 
was now rejected or dealt with by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said it's a personal note uh, uh, aimed at protecting Netanyahu. And hence it should be either postponed until next uh, the next government or revised. The, the core issue here on all the issues that related to the overhaul is the, the basic question or the, the crucial question. Does the Supreme Court have the power to A, deal with government decisions or, or government actions? But moreover, does the, the Supreme Court have the, the, the right, the authority, to uh, consider the, the basic laws? Now, that could have been a, an easy question to answer. In America, the, the United States is, has a constitution. That's a, that's the, and the Supreme Court judges, they rule based on what the constitution says or did not say. It's always based on interpretation. It's not uh, clear. In, in certain er- eras, they, they judge it this way. In other eras, the opposite way. Roe versus Wade about the abortions is one example. But in Israel, the basic law is... What, did, what differentiates a, a, a law from a basic law? Nothing. Just the word basic law in it. So you can determine that uh, basic law is the law that says uh, cottage cheese is uh, great. Just add the words, it's a basic law. And the, and the Knesset approves it as such. And because the government, it's a unicameral system, the government has control of the Knesset, uh, the basic, law, basic laws are just any law. That's the core issue. The core issue is lack of laws or judicial structure uh, that is sound enough to allow the Supreme Court to use that as a reference when they oversight the, the government act- actions and laws. That's the problem. Uh, that's the conflict is uh, what's all about. I'm going to put you on the spot uh, with my last question, Ron. Yes. How much of the heat over the judicial overhaul plans has nothing to do with judicial reforms, yes or no? with the drive behind the professed concerns being actually unmitigated opposition to the right-wing government of Netanyahu? A lot of the heat. A lot of the heat has to do with uh, past social rifts that have been dragged quite ugly, mostly by the coalition side, I have to say, but also from the other side. Rifts between ultra-Orthodox or religious and non-religious, between nationalist, uh, I would say, uh, the Gushe Munim, the settlement movement and the non-settlement movement between civil rights supporters and non-civil rights supporters. It's everything. It's in the mix. Sure, the main story is the judicial disagreement. But behind it, uh, sometimes, it's not central, but it does drive a lot of the protests. It does drive a lot of the supporters of the overall, uh, the sense that they were wronged in the past. A clear example is what happened during the disengagement plan when there was lots of protest and it got treated in a certain way and now these people are in power. And they say, why didn't you listen to us the way we try to listen to the protesters now? Why did you use uh, force against us, the, the police, the, the army, whatever, at that time? And now you're uh, expecting us to be uh, nice and fluffy towards you. So there's lots of past residue there. There's lots of historical issues. And that's it. It's it just... Uh, it came to a, sort of the, the peak, and it, the, the protest is lying on so much uh, past issues, it's uh, actually uncovering them. And people, topics that, that were, you know, considered like dead or, you know, no, no longer exist are being dragged into the open. And that's, again, harmful to Israeli society cohesion. Well, I thank you very much. 
Ron, for speaking with me on the Israel Connection about these vexing issues. And we won't see it going away uh, very, very soon. This is going to be uh, hanging over Israel almost like a Damocles sword uh, for, for quite uh, some time to come, unfortunately. To finish on a positive note, David. Good. We may have reached the, uh, the, the, the peak. We may have reached the lowest point, which is the opposite of peak. And I think that everybody understands that they need to do something to uh, fix the problem, which some agree. And maybe it's a good thing that this was flushed out, you know, that we can actually uh, deal with this uh, open wound, fix it and move on. So uh, I'm feeling optimistic. Well, thanks for concluding with some comforting words, Ron. Always a pleasure to talk to you, David, and thank you. You've been listening to an interview I recorded with Dr. Ron Porat a couple of days ago considering the effect that the Israeli government's judicial overhaul program is having on Israelis serving in the IDF. According to media reports, the chief spokesman of the IDF has acknowledged that protesting reservists are causing some harm to the army's readiness. Zoe Daniel, the independent federal representative for the seat of Goldstein in Melbourne, caused some controversy by signing an open letter, Do Better on Palestine, in 2021. She returned recently from a short trip to Israel, her first, as part of a bipartisan parliamentary delegation, and I managed to speak with her about her trip. Welcome, Zoe Daniel, to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio. Thank you for having me. So we're speaking today, Zoe, uh, about your recent trip to Israel, which was part of a supposedly bipartisan parliamentary delegation. Can you tell us what its essential purpose was? Yeah, so it was a multi-partisan delegation. It was led by the House Speaker, Milton Dick, and there were two Labor members, Tanya Lawrence from Western Australia and Michelle Ananda Raja, who's the member for Higgins in Melbourne, and Ross Vasta from the Liberal Party, uh, was one of the non-government members on the delegation and I was the other non-government member being an ind- independent. So this was a, an official parliamentary delegation as opposed to being a, a government delegation with a, a sort of partisan position, if you like, and it was actually quite significant in that it was a speaker-to-speaker delegation in that the House Speaker uh, obviously met with his counterpart from the Knesset and we all visited the, the Knesset. So it was very much a, a parliamentary delegation connecting uh, with the Israeli Knesset and we also uh, visited the Palestinian territories as well. Right. You didn't mention the name of the uh, Knesset uh, speaker. is actually Amir Ohana, who's something to note that he's uh, the first openly gay right-wing member of the Knesset uh, but I don't think that necessarily came up in your discussions with him. Well, no, Speaker Ohana spent a lot of time with the delegation. So we met him at the Knesset itself. We went into the Knesset chamber uh, with him and had a conversation with him about how the Knesset works. We had broader conversation about the political situation in Israel currently. This was a couple of weeks ago. Sorry, the bells are ringing here. That That's the Senate, though, nothing to worry about. Um, and we also had dinner uh, with the, the Speaker, uh, and then Speaker Ahana uh, hosted us at uh, Beersheba where we visited the Anzac Cemetery. Uh, so we did spend quite a bit of time, actually, uh, with the Speaker, which was, was useful, and there was some good 
and in-depth conversations as a result of that time spent. So overall you spent, I understand, six days in Israel-Palestine. Can you tell us what uh, places that you visited on your trip there? Yeah, so the first part of the trip uh, was very much connected to the the Knesset and hosted by uh, the speaker, as I said. So we spent pretty much a full day in the Knesset having meetings uh, with various members on with different political positions. There were several of them. So we met with um, Moshe Roth, for example, uh, Mansour Abbas, Sharon Nia. We met with Danny Danon, uh, Sharon Haskell, Yuli Edelstein, people with all sorts of different um, positions. And obviously, uh, being a, a coalition government, there's a whole range of perspectives in Israeli politics on, on the opposition side and on the government side. We did a lot of sort of looking around Jerusalem um, as well. Um, we visited some uh, cyber security laboratories, uh, looking at some really interesting projects that are, are government funded in regard to things like cyber hacking um, and those sorts of things. We we spoke to some Israeli uh, national security experts around the sort of broader geopolitical situation in relation to the Middle East generally and the Iran factor, if I could call it that. Spent a lot of time talking about the relationships between Israel and the US, and that was timely given that the president was actually in the US at that time uh, and there, there was some discussion in the press in regard to President Biden's position on Israel. We obviously uh, visited the in incredibly moving Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. The Book of Names room, and I'm sure many of your listeners have been there, uh, was is such an impactful place to spend some time. The whole museum's extraordinary, of course, but I did spend some time uh, because my mother's grandfather, my mother's grandmother uh, on the on her father's side was from Germany. And there's there are pages and pages of my mother's family name on, on that side of the family. So that was something that was very impactful for me. And then as I said, we visited Beersheba and then we spent um, sort of a day and a half doing some things in Ramallah. Uh, we met the Prime Minister, we met the Foreign Minister of the Palestinian Authority and some other sort of civil society spokespeople in, in Ramallah as well. Yes. Hmm. Just for uh, the information of my uh, listeners, uh, your family name that you didn't mention is Shaf. For anybody That's who right. uh, wants to know what, uh, what your connection is uh, back uh, to the Holocaust. So how, how would you say your views about uh, Israel-Palestine have been affected by your trip? Because you, this was the first time you'd ever been to that uh, part of the world. Uh, was was it long enough to uh, to uh, affect your, your views in the long run? Well, I, I don't think any trip like that is ever long enough. And, you know, I'm sure people would understand that you can only just touch the surface, especially in a place with thousands of years of very complicated history. But it, it was absolutely incredibly worthwhile. And I think, I mean, as a former journalist and foreign correspondent, it, I jumped at the opportunity to take this particular trip with the speaker because of the level of access that we were going to get to the various members of the Knesset, the speaker and and others. And also, well, the fact that Israeli politics is uh, particularly interesting 
right now and also very relevant to people in, in my community who are following that very closely. So to be able to spend some days immersed in that and trying to get a sense of, of what's happening and to understand the, the different positions was extremely useful. I mean, if in regard to the Israel-Palestine situation, I, I think in many ways the trip only confirmed to me how intractable that is and, in, in fact, that the prospect of a two-state solution, which is my position and the Australian government's position, it looks further off than ever because there, there doesn't seem to be any common ground on, on either side for any kind of negotiation. But that kind of trip, I think, just sparks a desire to go again uh, and to spend more time there and learning and, and having those conversations. There, there were some other useful conversations with, for example, journalists, economists, people from sort of various parts of civil society with different perspectives as well, which I think help, especially when you're trying to build a picture quite rapidly or try to trying to understand something quite quickly um, was useful too. But you went to Ramallah. Who was uh, hosting you there? I don't think you would have been with any Israelis or such. You would have been put into the hands of the Palestinian equation, I, I guess, when you That's were right. there. That's right. So, indeed, Australia has a mission uh, in Ramallah. Uh, so the the Australian embassy, which is based in Tel Aviv, was hosting us together with the uh, Knesset on the first part of the trip. But then, obviously, the is Israeli hosts stepped back and then the the Australian mission uh, from Ramallah kind of took charge of us from then. And we were in, uh, we, we we spent one day in Ramallah, talk, as I said, visiting the foreign minister uh, of the Palestinian Authority, visiting the prime minister. And those were quite formal visits because the the house speaker was meeting um, the the foreign minister and the, the prime minister, but the, the rest of the delegation was present in those meetings. And we also met with a, a pollster uh, who talked to us about sort of attitudes among people in the Palestinian territories in regard to politics. We talked about the prospect of an election and, you know, why that hasn't happened and how, how it can, those sorts of issues. Again, it's a, it's a case of just scratching the surface when you spend really a couple of days focusing on what has been such a, a obviously a long-running and very complex uh, conflict, but but still very worthwhile to have those conversations. So you said uh, a minute or so ago that uh, you adhered to the two-state solution. Uh, is this, uh, which has been uh, touted for such a long time, and because of the intractability, don't you think that we should be um, thinking a bit out of the box and finding uh, perhaps uh, other ways of uh, resolving this conflict? Yeah. Absolutely. It, but I guess every any anyone who steps into that region and starts having those conversations automatically jumps to surely there's a way to fix this. Um, but but apparently that it's not quite that simple. I mean, interestingly, we spent quite some time talking about the prospect of a one-state solution and how that might look, whether that would be acceptable to to both or either side. But Getting back to the fact that we spent some time talking to pollsters, I think roughly 80% of Israelis 
don't want a one-state solution. It, you then sort of come back to, well, if it's a, not a one-state solution and it's not a two-state solution, what is it? Um, and I think, as I said, there, there's no real room for, for negotiation there currently. There really doesn't seem to be. I think that one of the the takeaways for me from the sort of Israeli side was that there was a, a, a perspective that it's a Palestinian problem and they and they need to solve it. It's kind of a management situation from the Israeli perspective. There's not there's not a sense of wanting to step in uh, to find a resolution because obviously everyone's exhausted by trying to do that. But at the same time, from the perspective of those in the Palestinian territories that we we spoke to, there's a real sense of frustration about the lack of ability to have those conversations. Uh, so that that's the intractability there, and it, it seemed to me that you you almost need a third actor to step in to try to broker a, a solution to bridge those gaps. But you know, there, there's a big question about who would do that and why, and what the impact of, on, on that might be. That's um that's the House of Reps bell ringing for a division, unfortunately. So I'm going to have to uh, leave you because I've got now three and, and a half minutes. One, 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 one further question. I think we're very quick. Quick. We're quick. Yeah. There's a post on your Facebook page about your trip to Israel, which has four comments, which cannot be viewed now. The post there says that the delegation to Israel and the Palestinian territories was a great honour, and it says whilst I saw speaking, you're speaking, and learned so much. Overwhelmingly, it was a profound reminder that never again must we allow hatred and prejudice to flourish or to win. Now, that caught the yeah. eye of uh, some uh, uh, people who were not so supportive of Israel in its current form. Uh, and you've had to uh, limit comments on this post, and the post, the comments that are there are not visible. Is this uh, something which you unfortunately have to deal with as... Uh, as a politician. Unfortunately, and look, I do have to go, but I will say that, yes, unfortunately, those comments do attract sometimes uh, anti-Semitic responses and other responses. Uh, and I don't have a full-time moderator to moderate those posts. So I, I close comments um, and people can discuss them in the, the privacy of their own living room rather than on my threads. All right. Got to go, David. All right. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for your time. Bye. Listeners would have just heard how my interview with Zoe Daniel had to stop in order for her to head off to the House of Representatives to do her duty on behalf of her constituents. I had one other question to ask her about her thoughts on the judicial reforms, but uh, we didn't get time for that, and uh, and so be it. Uh, Zoe Daniel's thoughts on this subject don't really matter as much as Penny Wong's repeated criticisms of Israel, which has been compounded by her latest remarks in the Senate yesterday, where she showed how the current Labor government is definitely no friend of Israel. More on this next week. I must say I've been pursuing the Australian-Israel Labor dialogue to come on to the Israel Connection to speak about how the Labor government is aggravating Australia's relationship with Israel and appallingly even threatening to recognise the state of Palestine. So far, the response from this body has been mute. I hope to get a representative of the Australian-Israel Labor dialogue to speak out about concerns over the direction that this Labor government is taking on the eve of its national conference next week. Now, the UK government has presented a long-awaited bill to Parliament to ban boycotts, divestment and sanctions by public bodies. This had been promised in the Conservative Party's manifesto for the general election in 2019. 
The bill has been welcomed by the Board of Deputies of British Jews and the Jewish Leadership Council, as well as other Jewish and Israel-supporting organisations in the UK. However, its drafting has been criticised by some as unclear, as restricting freedom of expression, for singling out Israel and for allegedly contravening international law. The bill passed a second reading in the House of Commons on the 3rd of July, after an amendment to reject it, tabled by the opposition Labor Party, was defeated. Examination of the bill is expected to continue in public committee in September following the parliamentary recess. In a webinar conducted by UK Lawyers for Israel, the organisation's CEO, Jonathan Turner, and Natasha Halsdorf, its legal director, examined what the bill says and criticisms that have been made of it. The entire video of the webinar is available on the UK Lawyers for Israel YouTube channel, and I will provide a link to it on this program's Facebook page. I will now play an excerpt from the webinar in which Jonathan Turner responds to questions that were raised about the anti-BDS legislation being considered by the US government. May I start with a couple of points that have arisen in the context of various op-eds and interviews um, subsequent to the government introducing this bill to Parliament, in particular, one relating to existing laws. You've touched on uh, a number of uh, legal provisions in a framework dealing with local authority powers. It's been said to the extent that laws already exist to regulate this, what is the point of the bill? Could you shed some light on the limitations of the existing law and and the need for this legislation? Yes, so there are gaps in the existing law. We've, with a certain amount of carefulness and uh, intelligence, we've been able to make the most of the existing law in making representations to public bodies in the UK that uh, have been proposing or have adopted boycotts uh, or divestment, particularly in in, in our case, we we look at things that are targeting Israel because that's the purpose of uh, our our organisation. But it is made more difficult by the fact that the law is not in one place, that there are various different uh, exceptions uh, and limitations. And this provides a more comprehensive code than the existing law. And also it reflects a decision made by a narrow majority of the British public and um, implemented by the UK government and parliament to leave the European Union and, as the proponents uh, put it, to take back control, to make the responsibility for foreign policy, and particularly foreign trade policy, a national policy and, and not under the control of the supranational EU. So pursuant to that decision, a national procurement bill is passing through Parliament at the moment. As I mentioned uh, just now, it will repeal the legislation implementing the EU directives. And this bill will complement that by, by dealing with, specifically with, the use of public authorities to engage in boycotts and uh, divestment targeting foreign countries, uh, undermining uh, the national policy uh, that used to be subsumed in the supranational EU policy. We're we're transferring control from uh, the EU to uh, national government and parliament. It is actually rather strange that some of those who were uh, rather in favour of having things controlled at EU level now say the absolute opposite. Well, we must control them at uh, city council level, which is going to the absolute opposite extreme. 
it is actually, if you are going to have national control, and um, uh, many people think that is a, a good thing, and um, uh, there are all sorts of reasons in favour of that, but having decided on that, it really is going a great deal further than to say, well, uh, having done that, we're now going to make um, uh, city councils, leave it to city councils to conduct our um, economic pos- policy vis-a-vis China and so on. A further uh, criticism or, or concern voiced, uh, amongst others, uh, even by even Duncan Smith, the, the former Conservative Party leader, was that he, he was worried the bill could stop governments or government bodies, local governments, refusing to buy Chinese-made goods. Um, it's been reflected, that concern, in, in further questions we've had from our audience. One question reads, one criticism is that the bill prevents boycotts by public bodies of states uh, like Iran, Russia or China. Does it? And should local councils, etc., be free to make such procurement choices in relation to obvious tyrannies and rogue states? But what's the uh, reality of the position? Well, the general policy of the bill is that these decisions should be taken at national level, because it's not very good having Littlehampton Council and a few other local councillors doing one thing, deciding that their particular concern is China, another set of authorities deciding that Iran is their particular concern, and so on. Uh, You need to really do this at national level, and the national government needs to interface with partners elsewhere in the international community. And there's nothing in the bill that stops national government from engaging in policies to deal with China, Russia, and Iran, and and, and so on. The, the, The one minor exception to that is in relation to Israel. It can't be done by national government just making an executive order that would have to be uh, further legislation to uh, impose a boycott of Israel or territories under Israeli administration if that uh, clause is passed. But also, uh, the the, the other qualification I I make is that uh, there are already some exceptions in the bill that might apply, particularly to China, in that uh, there is a provision that says that um, there is an exception uh, regarding employment practices, uh, which um, is basically about slavery. And so to the extent that a, a council bases its decision on the fact that the goods in question are uh, made by slave labour, that is accepted from the prohibition in the bill, i.e. allowed. Um, and, and then, of course, the government can, um, if it decides that it is going to sanction Iran, uh, for example, well, it, it already is sanctioning Iran, it can make uh, addition, an additional exception for that. And certainly the uh, national government is sanctioning uh, Russia, and it is likely that uh, exceptions will be made uh, for Russia. Uh, and of course, there you have a very real threat, not just a threat to human rights, appalling though it is in Ukraine, uh, which of course you know, is off the scale compared with any any allegations that might be made against uh, Israel, for example, is a real threat to uh, international security, European security, when that kind of thing happens and there's no response to it. So that's fully justified on national security grounds. And uh, one of those rare occasions where you might make an exception, uh, despite the impact that uh, these things do have on international trade and the wealth that's created by international trade. Jonathan, there's a further concern that's been raised by many due to the application of this bill across the United Kingdom with respect to issues of devolution uh, and reserved powers. Uh, Now, Michael Gove being clear that 
foreign policy is is not a devolved matter. Uh, and yet, of course, there, there has been a degree of pushback. One questioner asks, given the statement by the SNP, uh, Scottish Government, is there a likelihood uh, that the extent of the future law will not include Scotland? Uh, do you have any thoughts to offer on what you anticipate in terms of the evolution of the bill? Of course, on its current drafting, it would, but there has been an indication that there would be a consent sought from the Scottish Government and others. Yes, well, the, the only way in which it would uh, not apply partly or wholly to Scotland would be if it's defeated in Parliament, if uh, there's a successful amendment passed. In my view, it's not a devolved matter. Um, it relates to foreign trade. Um, it is true that community cohesion itself is a devolved matter, but uh, the bill is by no means limited to community cohesion. That's one of its objectives, but not its sole objective. It is very importantly a matter of foreign trade policy, which is a matter that is reserved to the UK government and parliament. But even if it were not so, as um, Professor Adam Tonkins pointed out in a, a very good webinar uh, that uh, we held last month, uh, and uh, which uh, the video of that is um, available on UKFI Charitable Trust's YouTube channel, he pointed out that the political agreements that govern uh, devolution have not been regarded by the UK Supreme Court as justiciable. There is actually uh, no bar to the UK Parliament uh, legislating in breach of them if it were in breach. So if the legislation goes through, it goes through. That, that's it. That's essentially my understanding from what Professor Tompkins said. I won't try and uh, go into it in more detail, but just uh, recommend that people watch that video if they're interested in this point. A further questioner asks uh, why, but perhaps it, it should be whether you think Wales will go the way of Scotland uh, in this matter. Do you? Well, they might. I, I, I think they might well follow Scotland in saying we don't like it, as it were. But again, quite frankly, uh, there's not much they can do about it. And certainly one of the reasons given by Scottish government, they say that uh, well, we already have uh, legislation controlling public procurement, and so we don't need uh, any more. And interestingly enough, the public procurement bill that is uh, passing through the UK Parliament at the moment would repeal the regulations implementing uh, the EU directives uh, in relation to England and Wales, uh, but would not repeal the different regulations. They're in essentially the same terms, but they're, they're a different regulation, implementing the EU directives in Scotland. Um, so the Scot uh, Scottish government is saying that we shouldn't have uh, this act in Scotland because we've already got legislation. And the Labour Party is saying we shouldn't have this act because it makes a, a complete change in the legislation. And both views can't be right, actually. In, in my view, the situation is that they're both wrong. There is existing legislation. It is quite extensive, but it's not um, as complete as um, um, it should be. And that is why this bill is actually desirable and to be commended. May I touch briefly on free speech as I try and squeeze in as many questions as possible in the time that we have left. It, it, there's been substantial discussion about freedom of speech uh, and the allegation that this bill impacts uh, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Um, you've mentioned some of the UK case law, England and Wales. There's also uh, a certain extent of uh, European Convention 
case law that deals with similar issues of boycotts and public authorities. Uh, does that give comfort to uh, the provisions of this bill and the distinction between individuals' freedom of speech and the proper role of public authorities, uh, which this legislation addresses? Well, I think so. I would say there is perhaps a, a bit of room for argument on this as to how far the European Convention on Human Rights extends to public authorities. You could have an argument at the um, international level, if you like, uh, on that. But, but certainly as far as UK law is concerned, uh, the UK highest court has uh, very emphatically said no way that uh, public authorities uh, do not have rights uh, of freedom of expression. Individuals do, private bodies do, uh, but not uh, public authorities. The other thing that I would say is that there does appear to have been a tendency to treat almost anything as freedom of expression. And I do think there's something wrong with this. Yes, you can see that burning a flag, although it's a physical act, is necessarily also expressing a view uh, and comes within freedom of expression. One of the cases in the European Court of Human Rights, uh, Baldassi, was where Palestinian, pro-Palestinian activists um, took goods off the shelf of a supermarket that came from Israel, put them in a trolley at the entrance to the supermarket with a big uh, label on it saying, don't buy any of these goods, they come from Israel. Now, that was held to fall within the scope of freedom of expression. True, it involved taking things off uh, the shelves and putting them in the trolley. But nevertheless, the primary purpose of this exercise was to communicate a, a message to people coming into the shop. You can take this a bit too far. I, I, I think if you're a, a public authority that is uh, boycotting or threatening to boycott foreign country, to say that this is merely freedom of expression and not actually an act or a threatened act that has economic consequences, somehow should be treated by overriding freedom of expression rules, is, is wrong. Uh, and the sort of slightly trivialising example that I, I put is that someone might buy a fast car and race around with it uh, on roads in excess of the speed limit expressing their um, machismo and their exuberance and their pride in having a very fast car. And, and in a sense, it's true they are expressing something or other by speeding, probably not to, with a view to travel anywhere fast, but just to show off how um, big and fast their, their car is. So until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.